0: Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.
1: I'm Christina Kuzmich, and I remember when Noon Edition started in partnership with the Bloomington Herald Times. It continued a tradition of live talk programs going all the way back to Friday edition. Today, I manage Wyoming's public radio and media service. It's a little colder here, and the elevation is a little higher than Bloomington. But the listeners are just the same, they love local radio. Congratulations to the wonderful Noon Edition hosts and producers. I'm proud to have been a part of this great program.
2: Hi, Noon Edition. This is Angelo Batista calling. I was a producer from May 2017 to May 2018, and now I work as a producer for To the Best of Our Knowledge from Wisconsin Public Radio. Noon Edition was my first real job in radio, and I learned so much from putting together this show, and I really hope our listeners did too. So thanks so much to Bob and Sarah and Mike Paskash. Congrats on 20 years.
0: Thank you uh, for joining us for a very special Noon Edition today at Hive. We're broadcasting live from Hive Restaurant in Bloomington, where we're celebrating 20 years of Noon Edition, airing on WFIU. To properly look back on well over 900 shows, it's fitting that we've invited three guests of the highest caliber to join us here on the program today. We're going to talk first with Congressman Lee Hamilton, who served in the House of Representatives for over 30 years. Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, a renowned neuroanatomist, will join us Next, and then our our last guest of today will be Helen May, co-owner of May's Greenhouse, and the savior of many a noon edition gardening question and concern. Let me introduce uh, Lee Hamilton first, but first, let me just say, Sarah, it's good to be with you.
2: It's so good to be with you. Live, Bob. Live, Live.
0: I know. So Congressman Lee Hamilton served as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from uh, 1965 to 1999, After leaving Congress, he founded the Center on Congress at Indiana University. Hamilton is a leading expert on foreign policy. He served as vice chairman of the 9-11 Commission and co-chair of the Bipartisan Iraq Study Group. Hamilton has received numerous honors, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2015. Lee Hamilton is a true statesman, and welcome back to the program, Lee.
3: Bob, nice to be with you and Sarah. Thanks
0: for being here. So I've got to ask you today, you're watching what's going on in Washington today. (laughs) The word bipartisan was in my introduction about you. So, you know, what uh, what can we do to help get some bipartisanship back?
3: It isn't easy. (laughs) (laughs) We live in a very polarized time. And the partisanship of the Congress reflects the divisions of the American people. And uh, those divisions have become accentuated, maybe even exaggerated. I think what's missing from days gone by is the premise that politicians used to have, and I'm not sure they have today, that basically your job is to make the country work. And in order to do that, you have to accommodate a lot of different views. This is a very big country. It's a vast country geographically, but it's also got a lot of people in it. And the question really is the question that Lincoln asked, whether this nation, so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. And it takes an understanding of the country and the people to uh, build consensus. The job of a politician is to build a consensus behind a solution to a problem. That's the heart of it, Mm -hmm. and it's not easy to do.
0: Do you think, uh, you know, we have a standoff now. We have a shutdown of government. Um, Were there any shutdowns when you were in Congress?
3: every now and then but this is the longest by far it's disappointing isn't it Mm -hmm. here we are the world's greatest democracy or at least we like to think of ourselves that way and we can't run a government and that's a real disappointing factor to the American people we've got to get back to the view that we've got a complicated, difficult country to run. And we must insist that our politicians get away from the ideological rhetoric and try to solve the problems in front of them.
0: So if you had uh, Senator McConnell and Nancy Pelosi, if they were here watching this Noon Edition show, what would you tell them to do to try to get themselves together? I'd
3: tell them, first of all, I've been very disappointed in their leadership at the end of the day, they're the ones that have to make the Congress work. It's not working. Who's responsible? Well, a lot of people are responsible, but they're the leaders. It is their job to sit down in the room and make the decisions to make that institution work. And that's what I tell them
2: when we're looking at the structure of government it seems like increasingly more power is in the executive branch in the white house is that do you think that is a threat to overall democracy
3: yes i do now look uh, 2019 is not 1789 it's a lot bigger more complicated but you're right over the past decades power has shifted from the legislative and judicial branches, but especially the legislative, to the president. I worry about that a great deal. And I think we depend too much on the presidency and not enough on the other co-equal branches. Now, no one can contend that the Congress is a co-equal branch of government today. It is not. And it will not be restored to that quickly, but we've got to begin to reverse that trend and the Congress has to step up to its responsibilities. It's a puzzle. Politicians run for office because they want power. They get elected to office, they have power. In the Congress, they don't use it (laughs) and it's very frustrating, but they've got to reassert themselves. On particularly financial matters, because that's always the key. They have to reassert themselves on the budget, and that, of course, invites every issue in the country.
0: If I could follow up, this is not new with, with President Trump with you. I remember listening to you speak when President Obama was in office, and you've said a lot of the same things.
3: Am I in a rut? (laughs) <laughs> no, sir. Don't accuse me of that. Moment. Well, I said, th- look, the, the personalities change. The issues remain. And so it's not unusual from my point of view that uh, I mention that. I believe that, look, I, I believe... What the politicians do are very important. My desire is that they succeed. I never thought it was to my advantage to have a president of the United States fail. I always felt that my job was to help him. Now, not necessarily to agree with him every time, but to help him do his job better. And I hope all of us have that attitude toward politicians. They've got a very tough job trying to bring everybody together, as you've mentioned. We want them to succeed, because if they succeed, the country succeeds. Is there a
2: point that you can sort of point to and say this is a time that... Marked a change where we quit being so civil. We quit being able to debate and legislate.
3: Well, I don't think I can identify a specific point. These things develop over time. But one of the points, (laughs) among many, happened in Bloomington. Remember Frank McCloskey? He ran for public office and he ran for the Congress. And he got elected in one of the most controversial elections in the history of the country by three or four votes.
0: It was four votes. Four votes. Four votes.
3: Republicans always thought that the Democrats screwed them. (laughs) They may have been right. And I'm sure I could find examples the other way. So these things happen. People remember them. They get upset by them, and they kind of accumulate. But you've got to get away from those things and focus on the problem. And from my point of view, you have to take a very pragmatic approach. If I sat around the table and a politician began giving me an ideological speech, I told him to shut up. <laughs> I I can give them. I've done it, and I've probably done it in my sleep. (laughs) It doesn't get you anywhere. I want politicians who solve the problems that are before us. That's what I want. I think that's probably what a lot of Americans
2: want. It's interesting now if you look at the approval rating of Congress. I'm sure Mm -hmm. you know it better than I do. It's certainly in the single digits.
3: Well, it's never been very high (laughs) in the history of the country. Uh, but it's as you say; it's very low today, and I think it's low because they feel the people feel they're not doing a job.
0: So, are, are we past the point of no return?
3: Oh no! Nope. Oh my goodness, no! Don't say that. Okay, <laughs> I already did. Suppressing my little It was a question. Though. Look, the the system worked for 225 or 40 years didn't work perfectly, a lot of bumps and bruises along the way, but it worked. And you you have rhythms in a democracy, times when things work pretty well, times when they don't. Now, the problem today is we've hit a real ditch, and uh, it's going to be hard to get out of it. But the way to get out of it is not magic. The way to get out of it is to make the system work. Mm -hmm. And we know it can work. It has worked. The challenges are greater today in many respects. But it can work. And at the end of the day, you have to have a fundamental faith in the system. If these people lose confidence in the system, and that applies across the board in America, we're in deep deep trouble. So one of the things you always have to do is to keep hope alive in Jesse Jackson's statement. Terribly important. Let me tell you a quick, I gave a speech at the University of Iowa not long ago. After the speech, a young lady comes up to me and she said, Congressman, that was a wonderful speech. And I just said to myself, boy, I really knocked it out of the ballpark today, didn't I? And then she said, is there any hope? And I knew that I had blown it. I left that audience with no hope. We have to have confidence and hope to make this country go forward.
0: In the two minutes that we have left with you, I just wanted to ask you if you could reflect on your time on the 9-11 Commission and how that experience might have uh, changed you or just affected you.
3: The 9-11 was a searing crisis, one of the worst the country has ever faced. And what I remember from it more than anything else is resilience. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: We came back. We returned to the basics of regular order of solving our problem. We put together a commission, half Democrats, half Republicans. Tom Cain and I were the chair and the co-chair. We brought those people together and we said what we thought was the situation in the country at that time, very difficult crisis. But the country was looking to us to help solve it. And we told them to put aside their democracy, capital D, their republicanism, capital R, and focus on America and bringing a consensus behind solutions to the problem. And that's what we did. We insisted on it, and uh, we had hope.
1: <laughs> well,
0: so you've given us a lot of hope here today. Uh-huh. So one, one, I guess one last question: I mean, Is there is there one other? Could you talk about one of the people that you worked with in Congress that, that you felt was um, a statesman? I know that's a, you've worked with a lot of people. So is there somebody uh, that you could reach out to? Let's say on the other side of the aisle that you had a particularly great relationship with.
3: One of my closest friends, next-door neighbor in Alexandria, Virginia. Very, uh, his wife was a very close friend of my wife, Jerry Ford. Jerry Ford, uh, in my view, typifies much that is great about America. He, uh, he's a university football star, played on the wrong team, Michigan, <laughs> but a very likable man and a man dedicated to making this country go forward. So I had a very close relationship with him uh, over the years, and I think I benefited from it. I hope he did as well. But he understood the founding fathers and the ideals of this country, the difficulties of governing, and he set upon himself the goal of, trying to make things better better in his corner of the world.
0: And that's exactly what you've done for all these years. And I want to thank you for being here with us today on Noon Edition. This is Noon Edition.
4: Hi, I'm Mike Pashkash
3: and I've been the engineer for Noon Edition ever since the very first show back in 1998, and I'm still at it 20 years later. If you do the math, that's over 1,000 shows. Being part of a live production every week can be a bit of a challenge at times, but our talented team has always managed to pull it off. And one of the best things about Noon Edition is that every week brings a different topic along with new
4: and returning guests. I learn something from every show. Congratulations, everyone.
2: I'm Gretchen Frazee, a producer at the PBS NewsHour in Arlington, Virginia. I produced Noon Edition from 2011 to 2012. And I'm proud to have been a part of this program, which has brought together a diverse set of voices and fostered important community discussions for two decades. Congratulations, Noon Edition. This is Sally Gaskill, and I've been listening to Noon Edition for the last
1: 18 and a half years since I first came to Bloomington. Now, you know what Tip O'Neill said, all politics are local. And Noon Edition gives us insights into local news with local people. I particularly appreciate the times when the arts come into focus, and it's been fun to occasionally be on the show myself. Congratulations to Bob Salzberg and everyone on the WFIU News Team for 20 years of making it local.
0: Thank you very much for those kind words, and we're going to welcome, welcome back our guests to Noon Edition. We have a new guest with us for the second part of the program. Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor is here with us today. Thank you for being here, Jill.
1: Great to be here. Thank you. Let me
0: give a little bit of an introduction. Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, our second guest, is a neuroanatomist, author, and speaker. Her research pertained to studying the brains of those with mental illnesses, but she rose to prominence after she wrote and spoke about her 1996 stroke and subsequent fight for recovery. She's a a great speaker, a motivational speaker, and I'm going to ask, Jill, could you just go over for a couple of couple of minutes your story and how you sort of landed on the ted stage which was one of the big deals for you it
1: it truly was so i grew up with a brother diagnosed with schizophrenia so i was fascinated with the brain And studied the brain. I was uh, grew up in Terre Haute, and then I was doing my post uh, my postmortem my my postdoc work. Let's hope not (laughs) Uh, my postdoc work at Harvard Medical School. And I woke up one morning, and a hemorrhage happened in the left hemisphere of my brain. And in the course of four hours, I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life. So it was um, an eye-opening, amazing experience through the eyes of a neuroscientist to watch my mind go through this process of deterioration. And then it took eight years for me to recover. I wrote my book, My Stroke of Insight. Uh, I gave the first TED Talk that ever went viral, and that was when Ted and I became famous uh, <laughs> simultaneously. And then Oprah found out about it, uh, and I became one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential uh, people for 2008, all inside of six weeks. So my life exploded at that point.
0: I have to recommend to anybody who's in this room and anybody who's listening to go to uh, your local computer and mm-hmm. look at Jill's TED Talk. It will, it will change you, mm-hmm. I guarantee it.
2: In your book, you talk about having your stroke, and you, you don't exactly panic. It almost seems yeah. like you're not excited, but you're really interested. I was
1: fascinated. You know, when when you, when I mean, the organ... The anatomy of the organ is my fascination, and then here I was having an opportunity to watch it deteriorate circuit by circuit, and so through the eyes of a scientist, it was fascinating, but of course, I'm deteriorating more and more, and uh, uh, yeah, it had a happy ending. (laughs) Had <laughs> a happy ending. Right. Yeah.
0: So so what's new with you? I mean you've had you always have something new going yes, on. Yes,
1: I do. Well, I lost both my parents, uh, Hal Taylor and Gigi Taylor in two thousand fifteen. And so I took time off in sixteen and some of seventeen and now I'm just kind of storming back into the world. I always said I would never write a second book unless I had something really important to say. And it turns out I have something really important to say. So I am working on book number two, and, and that's uh, keeping me out of trouble, and it's very exciting for me.
0: Are you going to give us a preview? Uh,
1: well, I can give you a little bit. Based on the earlier conversation, you're looking at at, at you know, politics, and politics is a byproduct of what we are as human beings. And the right hemisphere processes information on a big, open, expansive, I'm a part of society, I want my tax dollars to go to uh, social services where I'm actually helping my fellow man. Uh, and you can pick the party of which one you think that is. Uh, and then there's the left hemisphere that focuses on the monetary reward. And it's, they, the two hemispheres have completely separate value structures, and that plays out in our society. And it's pretty much 50-50 in numbers, and it's 50-50 inside of your own head. So I'm about whole brain living, and this book is really looking at the advantages of the different characters of the left brain, if you will, and the different characters of the right brain, and trying to figure out how to live a whole brain life, capitalizing on the skill sets of, of both hemispheres.
0: So if you had uh, Nancy Pelosi yeah, and Mitch McConnell her here, what him. would you what would you say? I,
1: I'd say I think uh, I think one of you's in column one, and I think the others in column four. And it's like, how do we figure out how to get it all to work? Because because we're no different. I mean, the the beauty of the difference between anybody with a brain is everybody has a brain. And if both hemispheres are functioning, then we have the value structure of actually caring about our fellow man. And at the same time, we have a skill. That allows us to get stuff done. And so it's like, how do you find that balance? And, and I really do believe at a brain level, it is the natural evolution of humanity to become whole brain, because right now, the crisis is we are at the extremes, we are completely polarized. Well, inside of your own head you know you have a left brain and it's structured and it's organized and it's punctual and it goes to work and it does that and then you have a right hemisphere and it wants to play it wants to relax it wants to to you know care about other things and take its time so each one of us is managing this conflict inside of our own heads and if we're not managing it as individuals well then imagine what happens when you put a committee together or a group together or a whole society together and you have what we have have right now. So it's fascinating from a brain perspective.
2: You talk about teaching your brain. You can mm-hmm. teach your brain compassion.
1: Oh, absolutely. Oh, your brain is compassionate. A portion portion of your brain is designed to be compassionate. It is a circuit inside of your brain. So then the question is just like there's a circuit inside of your brain that you can train yourself to find your keys or be punctual. You actually can <laughs> train yourself to do that. So, but it's a matter of of what is your priority as it as a person in the world and how much time are you spending running circuits and the thing about circuitry is the more you run a circuit the more that circuit wants to run on automatic so that you don't have to think about it and, and then it grows, and then it kind of permeates the other parts of your life. So you absolutely have the ability to train yourself in all capacity. And and I, I, I think we've lost that. And now it's all about, about how loud can we be, how loud can the left brain be, how biting and mean can we be at this point, which is also the emotional system of that left brain. So it, it, the better we understand our own brain, then it's like I can look at you and I can say, Bob, I think right now, now you're in your left limbic system. <laughs> Can you come out and play and be curious and innovative and let's go do something and have a little more fun with it and then find our way into a solution? And, and to me, that, what Lee was talking about with hope, that's where the hope is. The hope is that we're not stuck in a tree and we're just going to plow down and it's my way or the highway on one side or the other because that's going to get us nowhere.
0: Well, I have to say, from the first time that you were on our program, uh, I think you were maybe right after the TED Talk, we had you on the program. Uh And, I mean, you were just fascinating as you are today. You said a lot of things about how everybody has a brain, they're just just different. People have different brains, and so everybody has value, and... That that was, I mean, it, it seems like a simpler time when that was what you were talking about. It did seem like
1: a simpler time. <laughs> but at the, at the level of the brain, the brain is, uh, and, and that's the beauty of having a brain is that it's filled with cells, and every ability we have, we have because those cells are performing a function. So, so if I'm going to say, um, uh, if I'm going to come in demanding something, that is circuitry inside of my brain. If I'm going to come in and I'm going to be compassionate and open, that's circuitry inside of my brain. So everything is based on the circuitry, and so for me, the mental health of humanity really goes back to the mental health of those cells and how do we get all the cells involved interacting with one another communicating with one another so that we are healthy individuals then going out and and you know packing together in bigger groups
2: i have to ask i i think i read it on your website you're doing something with oprah
1: um potentially yeah (laughs) um you know, you're talking about the movie. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, what I have learned over the course of the last 10 years is that having a movie made is virtually impossible. And, um, but I'm not going to leave it at that. I'm going to leave it at uh, I'm in another zig of another zag. And uh, I never know what's going to happen, and I never know where it's going to go. But I know that, that at some point uh, the perfect movie will happen. Uh I just am being very patient about them.
2: Your enthusiasm for the brain. Uh, I remember for the first time I met you, oh. you were you were saying big
1: beautiful brains. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> it's like you know we are so fortunate that we have one and it's even better when it works well. You know. Yeah. I mean, but I mean all the potential in the world is right there in 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 your cranial vault and it's like okay, how do we work with that organ in order to to create a a life that is full and what we want it to be and that's the beauty. If we want to be happy how do we define what happy is and what portions of our brain are we using and how do we really balance it all out because you have to have the meaning. True meaning comes from the right hemisphere where where I care about my fellow man. I am a part of a society that I value and, and, I, and everybody's a part of that and when we get rid of the politics and we have an emergency situation I don't care what race you are or what 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 political persuasion you are. I'm going to help you because you're a human being. And it's really hard to hate people up close and personal. It's really hard to do that. So the better we actually get to know one another and see our similarities, the right hemisphere is looking for similarity and what do we have in common and how, how what, what do you like that I like? What do we care about and how do we do that? When I look at you as a human, then it's like, okay, well, we have another structure that we have to try to figure out how to do that and we will have differences. But if we focus on our similarities instead of our differences, then we actually want to have a conversation with one another and we can find solutions. Solutions to problems. Otherwise, we just go more po- more polar.
0: So we're talking with Jill Bolte Taylor, and Jill has—I uh, have to say—she's wearing a, a brain on her shirt today. She brought more than one brain with her, I guess. Now, <laughs> did you did you bring more than one brain? Sometimes you travel with other brains. <laughs> I did right? not
1: bring it It's radio. <laughs> I didn't bring another brain. She took a brain to. She, she, she,
0: she took I a brain. She showed. Yeah. Uh, she showed yeah. Oprah a brain on now, TV. That how'd that go? Yeah,
1: you know, um, uh, <laughs> it went well. I, you know, I've had that dream forever of of handing Oprah that brain with the spinal cord hanging down and... <laughs> And then it happened, and it happened twice once. It happened on her webinar uh, for Soul Series. I was the premier guest for her Soul Series series, and that was fantastic. And then I was on her TV show with Dr. Oz. And, and to hand her the brain the second time, she was, like, familiar by then. Right. She didn't squeal quite so much. Uh-huh, yeah. But she still invited you back. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I love Oprah. I think Oprah is trying to live in a whole, uh, a, a, really a whole-brain life and how to help manifest compassion and love and openness and how to reach toward the other and recognize that the other has value. Uh, and I, I love that about her.
2: A lot of folks here and in Bloomington probably remember the big brains. The big brains. That you brought yeah. all over the streets of yeah. Bloomington. And you still yeah. have some of those, I do. Too.
1: I have 21 of those. And they actually traveled last year. Uh, they spent um, like six weeks on Butler University campus. And then they went from there to Fishers, the city of Fishers, and they had them on beautiful display for several months. Uh, and right now they're back in storage and they're getting cleaned up. And then this year they'll go back out on tour. So for me to be able to use them as an educational opportunity for people, I always ask communities to have educational programming wrapped around the beauty of the brain they also went to Terre Haute actually for uh, to the school system over there and then on public display so so they're getting around Terre Haute uh, around Indiana now and um, uh, my guess is that they will wander out into the world
0: we have a lot of listeners in Terre Haute that's where you mm-hmm. were from I right? grew up in Terre Haute yes I there? love
1: Terre Haute hello Terre Haute <laughs>
0: <laughs> so your, your first book was My Stroke of Insight a yeah. Brain Scientist Personal Journey I highly recommend it but also so when is your second book going to come out
1: you know um I'm hoping that it'll be done by the end of the summer. Uh, I've been working on it for two years, and it, it takes a while in talking about it and doing workshops with the material uh, in order to really figure out how does it flow off my tongue and what is my point and how I want to communicate it. And because I'm a public speaker, I'd much rather do it to a group than you know write a book. Uh, but I do strap myself into my chair and I write the book. So the book is being written. I'm hoping to have that done by, by definitely by the end of, of the year. Uh, but it's flowing well. Uh, so, so it's good. I, it's fantastic information. I find that, that everyone who takes it, you walk away having a better understanding of four basic characters inside of you. Who is, your, who is your thinking left brain, your emotional left brain? Who is your thinking right brain? Who is your your emotional right brain? They're very different characters. Characters with very different personalities and very different uh, value structures and, and I, I paint it kind of like it's a house with four rooms and you have the ability to choose and that's how I ended that TED talk in, in 08. We have the power to choose moment by moment who and how we want to be in the world and everybody, I mean I've had literally 300,000 emails of people saying how, how do I do that and this book is the answer to that question. You have the ability to shift into each of those characters in, in an instant as soon as you recognize what you're doing and that you have the power to do that. So, so it's kind of a way of how do I, how do I choose the world I want to live in? What world is my family living in? What, you know, everybody I come across, what column essentially are they in? And, and is that the column you want to be in? And is that the appropriate place for me to be at this moment in time? So it's really power over your own mind and who you are and how you are in the world and who doesn't want that. To me, that spells freedom.
0: So uh, what point during that eight years that you were struggling to regain everything that you'd lost do you think that sort of came to you that you could make choices
1: every day I I think it came to me one day when I I um I lived in the woods in in Sherwood Oaks and I'm living in the woods well moles live in the woods right (laughs) and moles would come up out of the woods into my yard and I would get angry And I would think, how can I get angry at this cute little fuzzy thing with no eyes and ugly paws, you know? I mean, I'm just feeling this. And I described it. I didn't understand the word anger. I didn't know what anger was. But I described what I was feeling to my mother. And she said, Joe, that is anger. You're feeling anger. And I'm thinking, I'm angry at this cute little fuzzy thing. And then it was like, well, I'm not really mad at that cute little fuzzy thing, which means there is a circuit inside of my brain that runs anger. So where did that anger circuit come from? What is at the core of that? And what say do I have in whether or not I'm going to run that circuit? Because it feels horrible inside of your body. I mean, your chest gets tight. You clamp your jaw. You furrow in your brow. You're you're just like, you know, you know what it feels like, right? Y'all looking at me like that. (laughs) You know, and, and we all know that. And it's a circuit. And then I realized I don't like the way that feels inside of my body. It feels horrible. Why would anybody ever choose to run that circuit and so so that's when I really became aware I don't have to run that circuit. Oh well isn't that something and how long does it take from the time it feels triggered to the time it ends is less than 90 seconds and it's like so that's when I started talking about the 90 second rule. It takes less than 90 seconds for any circuit in your brain to be triggered for you to run that circuit from beginning to end. Something in your brain gets flushed into your bloodstream. It gets flushed out of your bloodstream and it's over over but most of us stay angry for longer than 90 seconds right you're shaking your head at the moles at Uh, at the moles so so but but that's because you're rethinking the thought that re-stimulates that circuit then reruns that again flushes through your body again and we stay angry but we do have the ability to stop and I actually did a big um A big thing with the U.K. on 90-second rule for anger for the U.K. So I'm hoping maybe we can spread that through the U.S.
0: All right. We are out of time with Jill. I want to thank you so much. I mean, this is one of the reasons that Sarah and I love doing this show, because we get to talk to people like Lee Hamilton and Jill Bolte-Taylor and next, Helen May. We've covered hope. We've covered love and compassion. Gardening is next. This is Noon Edition.
4: This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, online at smithville.com. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
3: Hello, I'm Michael McGrawby, president of Indiana University. On behalf of the University, I want to congratulate Noon Edition on a remarkable 20 years on the year. I'm very pleased to have joined so many other people from IU who have appeared over the years on your outstanding program. I'm sure you will continue to provide your listeners with interesting, informative and civil conversation about the issues that matter
4: to the citizens of Bloomington and of our great state.
2: I'm Sophia Salaby, and I produced Noon Edition in 2016. Now I'm a producer for All Things Considered at Georgia Public Broadcasting in Atlanta. Noon Edition is a great show that allows Hoosiers to engage on the state's biggest issues. I'm glad to have worked on it. Congrats on 20 years on the air.
5: I'm Margie Hershey. I teach political science at Indiana University, and I have been privileged to be on Noon Edition several times. Uh, I think Noon Edition is a very good example of how we in Bloomington get the advantages of a much larger community, along with the convenience of a smaller one to have H.T. editor Bob Zaltzberg, Mary Catherine Carmichael, Sarah Whitmire, engineer Mike Pascash, all of them who could have had successful careers at any big city newspaper or radio station in the country, but we are so lucky that they've stayed here and given us programs such as Noon Edition for so long.
0: our our listeners for being there today, all our guests here at Hive. Also, I want to thank Michael McRobbie, Sophia Salaby, and Margie Hershey. Margie's our political correspondent here on Noon Edition. So welcome back to the program. And now we're joined by Helen May. Helen is the co-owner of May's Greenhouse in Bloomington. She opened May's Greenhouse with her parents and her sister Martha in April of 1965. Helen is retired now. So Helen is a frequent guest on Noon Edition. It's when the phones really light up. She joins Don Adamson, retired manager of Bloomington Valley Nursery, and we just play traffic cop and we take all the calls and all the questions that come in. So Helen, welcome. We're really happy to have
5: you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Thank you. Helen,
2: I'm always impressed. You come with no notes, no laptop, but you're like an encyclopedia.
5: Well, the encyclopedia has developed a few glitches uh, since I've gotten older.
2: You always seem prepared to answer everything, though, and I always find myself writing down notes for well, my own garden. It's
5: always nice to say, "Don, you take this one."
0: Well, that, yeah, Don couldn't be with us today, so Helen, you're on your own. But right. it's always a, it's always a pleasure to have Helen and Don in because they have they have good synergy together. They always uh, one of the two knows every. An answer to every question. Sometimes they have different answers to some of the questions.
5: Right. Yeah. Right.
0: So we've had a few questions come in from our audience, and this is the way we like to do this show. So I'm going to ask the first question. Sarah always has like 50 questions of her own because she's quite the gardener.
2: (laughs) I like to garden, but now I have a lot of deer, so it's just complicated my life.
0: Right. So here's the first question that came in from the audience. What is the best care for air plants? What is the best method for watering them?
5: Well, a mister like you do yeah. you know uh windows with or something with water in it and or if you have them outside just use your garden hose but in the house a mister is neater and uh the important thing if you have them indoors which a lot of them will have to come in for the winter because they're not winter hardy is that the house gets very dry so, you have to be pretty diligent about giving them an occasional uh, misting, um, you know, every couple of days maybe. Yeah. But generally, they'll survive the winter and you can move them back out again.
0: So, I have to ask though, I mean, Jill was really mad at the moles, mm-hmm. could you use a mister on the <laughs> moles or anything. Yeah.
5: I don't think they'd notice. <laughs> I've got to learn how to turn off my
2: anger at the moles, because this Mm -hmm. is something, and I know a lot of our listeners always ask about the moles. Well,
5: just think, they're eating bad bugs, they're also eating good bugs, Uh, and they're aerating your soil, improving your ground, so they're working for you. I think I might be able to get
2: over it in 90 seconds if I then (laughs) didn't have to look at the damage that the moles do, too.
5: (laughs) Well, you just take your rake and knock those hills down and pretend the rest isn't there. I guess. We got a question about forsythia. Someone's saying, it's
2: out of control. When is the best time to cut it back, and how far should I cut it back?
5: You can cut it back immediately after it finishes blooming is the ideal time. And you can cut it as much as you want because it's a very vigorous thing, and it will grow from being cut back two feet high or 12 inches high uh, uh, up to eight or nine feet. So just uh, as soon as it finishes blooming because next year it will bloom on the wood it grew the previous summer. So that's the time to do it.
0: So before I ask the next question, I just want to ask about your being on the show because you've been on the show for quite some time. I mean, is it, uh, do people recognize your voice when you're out there? uh,
5: I, I don't think so <laughs> <laughs> uh it, it's pretty it's pretty much a who's your voice i don't <laughs> think it's any, so <laughs> unusual you seem so
0: much more i mean you you've always been you've always been able to answer all the questions you do seem like you've you've developed a little bit more comfort being on the radio than well
5: you... uh, after that length of time you you do get sort of used to doing you know yeah. Uh, the thing and it, it's always interesting because of the questions that come in so i always enjoy doing it mm-hmm. for that reason
0: mm-hmm.
5: and sometimes i am stumped I,
0: <laughs> rarely
2: <laughs> no. yeah you've been on the show almost since noon edition started though you've been doing
5: the gardening show a long time yes yeah. yes quite a long time
0: all right here's another question that came in from the audience what is the best way to preserve prep my soil for the winter months
5: well, you, you tear out the weeds, especially if they've gone to seed, and you uh, kind of rake out any trash and leaves that have accumulated. Though A few leaves won't matter, but you don't want a heavy. And you put some nice fresh mulch down, and, and it's ready for the winter. Okay. That's all that's involved.
0: All right. And here's another question. When is the best time to stout, start outdoor plants inside?
5: It depends entirely on what plants you're starting because they require some things will germinate almost within 48 hours and some may take two weeks to come up And, and some may mature in 70 days and some may mature in 140 days so you need to look at the packet and see what it recommends and usually it will recommend uh it will tell you how many days it will take to maturity and it will recommend a temperature to start the seed at, And you want to just, most seed, just barely cover it. And really tiny, tiny seed like begonias, you just sort of hint at covering them. You don't really hint and at covering and kind them. of spritz them into the soil with mm-hmm. some water, you know, mm-hmm. with some, a sprayer you kind. Know. Okay. That probably segues
2: into another. When, when do you start planting garden seeds for your garden plants?
5: Well, the the thing is about the same, except most of them don't take that long. But they vary quite a bit in the temperature at which you can put them outside to grow. So you don't want to get them terribly overgrown or have them real small when it's time to go out. So you need to learn a little bit about how quickly they mature. Things like melons and cucumbers, which can't go out until it's really warmed up, uh, come up very rapidly and don't take long. And they're better sown right in pots so the roots aren't disturbed. Just plant Mm -hmm. the peat pot and everything at one time. Something like corn, you can plant as soon as, uh, uh, well, the old rule is as soon as the oak leaves are as big as a squirrel's ear. (laughs) (laughs) Which is. (laughs) There'd still be be some uh, chance of frost. But but you could plant them beans. You should wait just a little later, and generally um, you're just going to have to get some experience to so you that you know. But your garden center or wherever you buy the seed can usually advise you about that. Uh, uh, the rule used to be that uh, uh, you could you could plant. Uh, uh, beans about, uh, oh, the week after the last frost. But who knows when the last frost is going right. to be. Right, Yeah.
2: <laughs> I know in the past on this show, you've talked mm-hmm. about the need to water your plants in the winter because...
5: Well, it depends c- somewhat on the plant, but things can get pretty dried out, particularly if they're under eaves or... Uh, or if they're broad evergreens, which require a lot of water through the winter, and if the surface is frozen, you want them to be moist down deep where they can draw some water up because otherwise their leaves will begin to burn and fall off or, you know, go bad. Um, generally, if you have fairly bland weather up till somewhere around Christmas, you just go out and check things, and if they really look dry and under the eaves or along... Very often, on the north side of a wall, it will be very dry. Uh, you just check the soil and you think, well, it's pretty dry," and you get to have the hose and give it a drink. But um, you particularly need to be careful with hollies, rhododendrons, some kinds of ferns, uh, things that retain moisture through the winter, uh, boxwood, um, azaleas because they have a kind of shallow root system. Um, and uh, things like your big old maples and so forth, they don't care. Uh, they've got enough water because they root deep. But uh, things that have very shallow root systems, you want to kind of check. And if you have a long, warm, dry spell, take a look. And if it looks kind of dry when you scruff the soil up a little bit, uh, give them a drink. But
2: uh, all the snow is surely helping us. Well, the snow we've had well, the past couple weekends. Yeah.
5: The snow helps in two ways. It keeps the plant from drying out so quickly. It blankets it and protects it uh, and keeps the soil moist, moist. When it thaws, it gives them some water. So that's good. But if if it's bone dry at any time, you need to try to water it. Now there's no point in watering when it's frozen hard as a rock. (laughs) Because it won't go in. It'll just run around and
0: maybe drop some things. So we have just a few minutes left mm-hmm. in the program. If anybody has a question in the audience, you might still be able to give it to somebody yeah. and get get it asked. Well, we have a couple more, Sarah. You yeah. can go we with that. A, but I wanted, to, I wanted to ask Helen mm-hmm. first about, uh, well, I want to mention the fact that you frequently will say, because not everybody is, has that encyclopedic knowledge that you have and Don has. you frequently will say go ask a person at your garden center or ask a person at your arborist right
5: yeah that's an easy way to to get information because those people love to tell you how to do that they want you to (laughs) succeed um and sometimes you'll ask them questions that they won't know uh used to we would say well go see the county agent but
0: he disappeared yeah not so much anymore (laughs) Um, sorry you got another question
2: What are the best plants and flowers to attract butterflies?
5: Well, butterflies want bloom, constant bloom, because they they feed on nectar. Um, There are a lot of things you can get. Uh, Annuals are good because they tend to bloom over a long period. Perennials often have a lot of nectar, but they bloom for just a few weeks, and then you need another variety coming on. Um, Certainly, uh, tall garden flocks is good. Common old zinnias and petunias, uh, uh, marigolds, uh, those are good. Uh, The uh, scarlet sage is a great thing to grow for uh, hummingbirds um and uh honeysuckle though it is not on the prescribed planting list is very popular with hummingbirds and a lot of uh, night flying moths and uh various creatures yeah and little kids you can pull you can pull that flower off and suck that one drop of hun- of sweet nectar out Spent a lot of time doing that as a little kid. <laughs> Alright, we have time. We have one minute to go okay. in
0: Helen's portion. So we have two questions. Mm-hmm. I think. Here's one if you can keep the answer short. Tommy asks, How do you deal with mealy bugs on indoor plants?
5: Oh can you do that short? You have to be very <laughs> persistent. Okay. Uh there are a number of things you can use. Uh your garden center can prescribe something for your situation. But You're not going to get them the first time you treat them. You're not going to get them the second time. You're going to have to keep after them. And then when you think they're clean, check them again in two weeks because they may come back. And the last one, what should I do with my Christmas cactus after it blooms? You keep it indoors, uh, 60s or somewhere around in there, 65s, whatever your house is, uh, where they get some good light. They don't have to have direct sunlight all day, but it should be fairly strong. Along uh, towards spring, you can start feeding them a little bit of uh, dilute houseplant food in water. And, and as soon as the weather's right, get them out on a porch or something where the sun's not too strong. And leave them there as long as you dare before frost. And you should have got buds when you bring them in that way.
0: All right. We are out of time. I want to thank uh, all of our guests today <laughs> for our special in, installment of WFIU's Noon Edition, Lee Hamilton, Jill Bolte-Taylor, and Helen May. I want to thank everybody who came out today to Hive Restaurant to be with us on this 20th anniversary show. And I want to thank our producer, Patrick McGurr, engineer Mike Pascash, co-host Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. <laughs>
4: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville.
0: Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.